Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome to the Meb Faber Show. This is your host, Meb Faber. Today, we have an extra special guest, Professor Wes Gray. Wes, welcome to the show. Hey, Meb. Thanks for having me. So, Wes, uh, a super quick background. Like uh, many of our guests, Wes has a pretty unique and varied background. He's got a PhD and, I think, MBA from University of Chicago, studied under Nobel laureate Fama did undergrad at Penn. Is that right? Yeah, that's what'd right. You, what'd you, did you study business then too or something else? Yeah, I was, uh, unlike you, I, I never branched out in world. So I was a Wharton undergrad and I just always did vocational schools my whole uh, education time. Well, and then, and then there was a stop for four years in between as a Marine in Iraq. And also Wes now runs Alpha Architect, which is a institutional money manager. They also have four ETFs and also launching it, or I believe launched a tactical robo-advisor, which we'll talk about at some point as well. You're our second guest. We had Patrick O'Shaughnessy on in the office, and I'm kind of glad you're remote. You're in Pennsylvania right now, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm glad you're remote because when Patrick was here, I said, Patrick, during this podcast, we're going to do a a beer tasting. And I know you (laughs) love beer too, but the problem was Patrick had to give a speech the next day. And this podcast went on for about an hour and a half. So Patrick had probably half of one beer and I had probably the other four. So my, my, the quality of my discussion went downhill quickly, but it probably made Patrick sound great. So good news is it's also 9 a.m. So no beer drinking yeah. today. Um, you may be on, on your side, but none, none over here. All right. So let's get started. So one of the, one of the things that I did in the first one is I looked up online and you can sort people's Twitter stream, and Wes is a prolific tweeter, and you can sort them by their most popular posts or most liked or most retweeted. So I figured I'd use some of those as a jumping off point for conversation. And one of the, one of the first ones, one of the most popular, and we'll talk about a few, was an article you did in the Wall Street Journal almost a year ago called What the Marine Corps Taught Me About Investing. And if you don't remember this article, I'm sure you do, but there was a few takeaways. First one being follow your model. Maybe you could talk about that real quick and, and kind of extrapolate any takeaways you had from your time uh, in service. You know, one of the things that you learn in, in being in battle and is that basically the human element, you can never take it away. And, and I think what you notice about the human element is that when humans are involved, humans make crazy decisions sometimes. And the only way you can get rid of making crazy decisions 
is to basically automate things and do standard operating procedures. And, you know, and that's what you obviously do in the Marine Corps all the time is you, you train to a standard because you know that when the proverbial, you know, feces hits the fan, you're always going to revert back to what your human nature wants you to do. And, and I, you know, as, as well, just like you think and how we think in investing, it's, it's the same problem. Like, you know, you can sit there and be in a 50% drawdown uh, in theory and be like, oh yeah, just buy and hold, no problem. But we all know in reality is when you're in a 50% drawdown, you're going to sell everything and, and give up. So you want to kind of either follow a model or have some sort of process in place before you enter combat or before you enter the market just to kind of almost protect you from your own, uh, you know, behavioral bias and, and problems you have, you might have. And it's interesting because you also talk about trusting evidence and evidence-based investing. And lastly, you said integrity is everything. And this is an interesting comment because particularly in our business, what's often a high compensation business, you see Forbes 500, plenty of hedge fund managers on there every year, but it also attracts kind of the bad actors. And I can't tell you how many, you know, Madoffs we've seen, Galleons, F squared, all of these just really bad actors. And think, uh, I think that's a really important point you make that's often not talked about a whole lot is, is the integrity side. Yeah, definitely. The, uh, probably the biggest issue with, uh, financial markets is it's a market where it's really hard to learn effectively because the outcomes are realized way into the future. There's tons of volatility and it's really complex to understand whether someone actually was doing the right thing and the wrong thing, which means in the end, all you can really rely on is at some level trust in whoever you're working with. And that's a good thing uh, in the sense that, you know, you want to build trust you know, so you can do the right thing and help people out. Also, the problem with that is once you have someone's trust, because it's so hard to ascertain whether you're basically full of shit or not, you know, in theory, you could use it for nefarious, you know, means. And that's again, that's kind of why you know, integrity is kind of a big deal in, in financial markets. And, uh, you know, Buffett has that old saying where you can spend a lifetime building your integrity and your honor and all that stuff. And, you know, five minutes, you can blow the whole thing. You see it a lot of a lot of swindling going on with financial advisors that attract professional athletes. I mean, it's almost every day I was ribbing a, a good buddy who's a Cowboys fan where one of the Cowboys just came out and he said he lost millions of dollars by investing in a Bitcoin mine. Just those sort of things, you know, people see the old proverb, fish see the bait, not the hook. You know, everyone dreams about these returns and high returns. And this is actually going to lead, lead perfect lead in to one of your other most popular tweets and talking about what's possible with returns and what's possible in investing in general. And the title of this post you did, which is your most popular tweet, was even God would get fired as an active investor. And I'm going to read a whole paragraph and then let you run with this. But I thought this paragraph was so good that, that it's going to be a lead in. So you said, empirical asset pricing research can sometimes get monotonous because you end up circling back relentlessly to the same conclusions. Value works, momentum works, and yet markets are remarkably efficient. But sometimes research uncovers absolutely stunning and counterintuitive results. And that is where things get truly exciting. The study below is what we consider to be exciting research because the results are so profound, parentheses, at least to us. Our bottom line result is that perfect foresight 
Crystal Ball, that's my words, has great returns, but gut-wrenching drawdowns. In other words, an active manager who is clairvoyant and knew ahead of time exactly what stocks were going to be in the long-term winners and losers would likely get fired many times over if they were managing other people's money. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that study, how you designed it, what, what it kind of means to, uh, to investors? Sure. Yeah. And, and I, I won't even take full credit for the inspiration. The, w- the way this happened is I was, uh, I was given a talk at a thing called the Nantucket Project, which is uh, one of these mutual admiration societies, which are great. I was there, but there's a lot of rich people and famous people. And I gave my talk and I was, I was at this bar and this guy in the corner was like, pretty wasted and i was there with one of my business partners david and this this guy starts walking toward us and i'm like oh god well he sits down and he introduces himself he's like yeah i'm a chicago economics phd from 1980 and i was like oh god and he's pretty wasted he's like i want you guys to do this this general test where it wasn't related to exactly what we did in this study but he wanted to actually just examine how much look-ahead bias actually can influence like back tests or whatever. So we were kind of doing research along that line just to see like, hey, what does look-ahead do? Like how can that influence a back test? And then we started thinking, wait a second, I'm just curious to know if you had the perfect look ahead, how, like, just how, what your performance would look like. And of course, you know, the intuitive thing is if you have perfect foresight and you know exactly the names that are going to be the best performers over the next five years and the worst performance, you're going to have amazing returns. I think you referred to it in your article as Biff from Back to the Future having the sports almanac. That's right. 100%. And, and obviously, if you have that sports almanac, you do really well. And then just by pure serendipity, because we run these things in all our analytics tools, we start looking at the drawdowns on what we call this God portfolio. And we're like, holy shnikes, you can actually get your face ripped off, even if you're God, and you know exactly what the long, exactly what the short. And it was just fascinating that you know, even if you're perfect, you know, if you're managing other people's money, you know, assuming they, you couldn't convince them you were actually God, because that would probably be tough, you know, they would probably pull their capital at, at certain time periods. Let me give some statistics just for context for the listeners. Every five years, they would rebalance this portfolio, pick the top 50 stocks out of the S&P 500, all the way back to the 1920s. So if you were able to pick with perfect foresight, you would have done 28% a year. And this is versus about 10% for stocks. As you can imagine, people are out there that are trying to market 20, 30% returns. Just put that into context. You have to be perfect. Zero mistakes to be able to get to 30%. But the big thing that Wes is, is the bigger takeaway is not just, all right, there's a ceiling on what's possible, but also the loss you would have experienced at one point with this portfolio or drawdown, the way we call it, peak to trough, was 76%. So even if you were perfect, even if you were Ted Williams combined with Babe Ruth, combined with Barry Bonds, all of them, you still would have lost 75% at some point. And that's really, really hard to, to live through. And then you actually kind of did the, the combination too, where you said perfect foresight on the best names, but also if you shorted the worst names. And a lot of people would assume that all of a sudden you would have a really low vol, low drawdown strategy, but that wasn't the case, was it? 
No, not not at all. Basically, when you do the long short, because now you're long the best names they just mentioned, almost have 30 kagers, and you're short the worst names that I don't even remember, but they're like terrible, like negative five kagers. You end up with a, a portfolio that's going to grind, you know, almost 50% kagers. So obviously, you're going to become a trillionaire pretty quick. However, there's also an episode where that portfolio has a 60% drawdown. And what makes matters worse is over that same time period, the market has is a hundred has a hundred percent gain. So you can imagine being a, a hedge fund guy and saying, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm God. I'm I'm down sixty. And they're like, "Well, the market's up a hundred. You're an idiot. You're fired. Give me my money back." E- even though you know, if you would have stuck with that, you'd obviously be a trillionaire. So it's just unbelievable there's a great quote too about being a professional investor and this is kyle bass and our our buddy morgan was tweeting it the other day and he said it's easy to maintain conviction it's harder to maintain investors 100 percent agree with that and that kind of goes along with some other ideas you were talking about recently which is talking about being a value investor and said all right if you want to spot a true value investor look for horrible performance would you want to talk about that post at all yeah, yeah, sure. And and you know this as well. Anyone who's in the industry knows that you're you're always waiting this this trade off between I got to run a business and I want to maintain my asset base, but at the same time you also want to actually generate performance for your clients. The problem is sometimes those two objectives are in conflict because if I'm a large asset manager, you know I don't really have huge incentives to knock it. You know, knock the 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 cover off the ball because if I outperform by a lot, whatever, I got my same assets. If I underperform by a little, no one's going to fire me because it's kind of sticky. But if I get destroyed by the market in a year, I'm like done. Everyone's going to rip their assets out. So what do people do? They closet index. What do a lot of people don't do? They actually do the active strategies that generate the returns that are actually documented in academic research. And so value in 2015, as an example, is a, is a perfect uh, example of this where if, if you look at all quote unquote value funds out there, they pretty much look like the S&P with a little bit of noise. Whereas if you just look at like a generic, you know, top decile cheap portfolio on book the market, just, you know, grabbing data off Ken French's website, you know, that portfolio obviously got destroyed last year, you know, likely driven a lot by energy, but that's just the reality of it. If you're actually doing active value, you know, you should have got your head ripped off last year. And if not, you're kind of faking it because you're just a closet indexer. And so it's really hard to, you know, for, for people to understand that you don't want to be following the market if you're trying to buy something that is supposedly different. You actually want it to underperform some of the time really bad and and obviously outperform some of the time really well. Uh, But the last thing you want is to basically buy more of the same crap you already have because you you can buy a Vanguard fund for free. So why would you want to double pay for that? And you see that with a lot of funds that what looks like maybe a reasonable fee of half a percent or 60 basis points, if you look at the actual holdings and compare it to the active share, because it's a closet indexer, you're, you're not paying the five basis points you would pay to Vanguard, but you're really paying, you know, a 1.5% on the active side. You're just not that active and it's mostly an S&P plus a little bit different. What do you see as kind of a, the right 
number of stocks for a public fund manager to hold is it because there's a there's got to be a blend between concentration but also getting enough diversification so that it accurately reflects the strategy what's what's the right number of stocks for you yeah, I think it depends on on the psychology makeup of the individual that's going to use it. But for us, we, we try to get it as extreme as possible within regulatory limits. So we try to get like equal weight, you know, 40, 50 stocks because within, you know, like ETF structures or mutual fund complexes, there's rules. You can't just like put all your money in one stock in, in whatever. That's fine. But I, I think, you know, there, there's old studies on, you know, correlations of random portfolios where one stock obviously is a bad idea. You know, two stocks, probably a bad idea. 10, you know, it's all right. 20, 30, getting better. 40, 50, great. And then, you know, there's between really between 50 stock portfolio and like 5,000 is pretty much nothing. So, so we like to keep them kind of, you know, 40 to 50 where a lot of the, what they call idiosyncratic risk or kind of random volatility that's just associated with company specific issues kind of washes out. And at the same time, you, you, you can concentrate on whatever factor or characteristic that you're, you know, you're going for. So, so we like 40 to 50, but reasonable people can disagree. There's a fund in Europe, I'm blanking on the name, that is a momentum fund that just owns the single best, in their mind, momentum asset. And I thought that was a pretty, pretty great balls to the wall portfolio. And it has hundreds of millions of dollars in it. I, I can't imagine they're probably going to stay in business forever, but uh, I, I love the, I love the concept. I mean, in theory, you know, you'd probably run it maybe, I don't know, 20 to 30. And then you'd obviously want to pull that with other exposures. You know, like you mentioned in that, you know, that Trinity piece, like you want to have value, but you also want to have momentum. Because if you just do value, you're going to like want to jump off a cliff, you know, many years. And you, you want to obviously pull with other things as well. But I think to get the concentrated effect, you know, I think, 30 is, is maybe is 30 to 40, maybe be the ultimate sweet spot. 40 to 50 is, you know, basically the same thing. And, and Wes, Wes is a quant that really, to give you some credit, leads with what we would call evidence-based investing, which means I think it, it's, it was Fama that used to say, if it's in the data, just show me. But, you know, you also did a post called the academic finance papers that changed my mind. And we're not going to go down this rabbit hole because everyone will fall asleep while they're driving their cars, listening to this podcast and crash. But there, there, but there was a general evolution in kind of your career of thinking about markets and thinking about the way things worked, where you talk about early days and value investing. And then the PhD days where, you know, the tilts towards market efficiency and then kind of current thinking, you know, maybe talk a little bit about what you were just mentioning that you know, the, the ability to hold in your head two thoughts, which is something like value works and something like momentum works, where so many investors, you know, they want to say, hey, I'm a gold bug guy or I'm a stocks guy or I believe I'm a boglehead. I, I index and that's that. Summarize your evolution of thinking and how you think about markets today and, and how you guys manage money for your various strategies because you're rare and that you do both value strategies and momentum strategies as well. Yeah. So, so I kind of start off, I guess, with a good start, you know, reading Ben Graham, doing the whole value thing. And, you know, I recommend everyone probably get started there because it's a common sense approach that a lot of times will keep you out of trouble from doing crazy things like day trading or, or what have you. You start off there and you become a value investor and you're like, okay, this works because I buy cheap stuff. 
And like everyone's like, well, yeah, that makes sense. You buy cheap stuff that works. But but then you know you start doing it, and then you you know I start asking, well, why do things work? Because does it work just because stuff is cheap? No. Investing is all about essentially front-running other people's expectations. Because the only reason value investing works is because those cheap stocks eventually someone else in the marketplace down the road says, oh, wow, this is not a total you know, dire situation. It's not as bad as we thought. They reevaluate expectations and, it, and you make a spread there. That's why value works. And the core psychology is it's basically an overreaction to crappy news. You know, people throw the baby out with the bathwater on average. And then what happens is expectations down the road change. They get revalued. You make money. That's why value works. Not because you buy cheap stuff and because the market gods just say you deserve to get paid. It works because it's essentially cheapness is a proxy for a biased expectation that gets resolved down the road. And when it changes, you make money. Once you start thinking in that context that things work because you've basically front run other people's expectations that you know will change in the future on average. Now it opens up your, your whole world to not being so dogmatic that like, Oh, we only buy value because that's what you know Ben Graham said and he says technicals are stupid well what if technicals what if you can find like momentum or like you always talk about like trend falling where, where you can actually say wait a second you know momentum we can actually map that back and highlight that momentum is basically a proxy for underreaction to good news and if we systematically buy these securities it tends to be the case that there is an underreaction to the news that's being pushed into the price and it gets resolved down in the future and we're going to make money when, when people realize that. So it's all about, again, front-run expectations and finding signals that you know help you do that in an effective manner, basically. And so thinking about that and thinking about what we call in our world factors like value or momentum, at some point there's been a lot of noise lately where a couple other big quants, Rob Arnott and Cliff Asnes and others have been talking about factor timing, meaning Rob was talking about, hey, there's some factors like low volatility or high dividends where over time they work great. And you were talking about some of the Chicago guys talking about price to book, for example. But it, but at times they go through long periods of outperformance and underperformance, but also you could possibly take a step back and say there's a factor that maybe the stocks are now expensive in that factor. And Rob was talking specifically about low volatility stocks. And then Cliff says, no, you probably shouldn't time these factors, but just diversify across them. What's kind of your take on that space? Do you think it's possible to time them? Do you think much about it? Are you guys doing any research there? Yeah, of course. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm biased towards Asnes because he's a Wharton undergrad, Chicago PhD, then became a professor. I have the same training, so we're obviously going to think very similarly here. Maybe that's just because it is what it is. And well, perfect. I'll take just... Rob's side on this. So let's yeah, hear what yeah, you're exactly. you going to say. Yeah, so, so our basic opinion is obviously going to be probably related to Asnes's, is that the, like, let's just take value and momentum, for example, right? 
right? So there's clearly episodes where, you know, to Rob's point, you know, maybe, you know, the value stocks or even the cheapest value stocks on an absolute level are just not cheap. So maybe you could somehow time that exposure or whatever signal it is, you think there's a way to time between them. And that's fine. Um, the problem is there, you get a bird in the hand effect of diversification when you combine value and momentum because for whatever reason they're they're yin and yang and i'm not really sure anyone understands exactly why but empirically there's no doubting that that's the case when you combine them in just a generic way let's just say you equal weight them or vol weight them or whatever you're guaranteeing yourself the diversification benefit the minute you step outside of that you're now in the bird in the bush fight yeah, we might be able to add marginal value by shifting from, say, value over to momentum or from momentum over to value. But now we're implicitly giving up the bird in the hand diversification benefit for the anticipated reward of, of that marginal extra benefit of, of being able to switch back and forth. I mean, we just can't get comfortable that there's anything that's as robust enough to overwhelm this this burn the hand diversification benefit, so th- that that's kind of our take on it. Yeah, I just I, I want to believe that it's possible. I, but then again, you know, had we done this podcast in January, I would have said low vol stocks are expensive, high dividend yielders. You should run away from them. And of course, what's happened this year? Utility stocks are just blowing it out of the water. So of course, things can always move you know, even farther than you expect them to. We're doing a lot of research there. I don't have any simple answers and takeaways, but think it's a, it's an interesting area. Kind of under the same lines, we had a couple Twitter questions I asked yesterday. I said, Wes is coming on. People can email me questions. And, and for the show in general, we always do feedback at the Meb Faber show. If you have Q&A, we'll, we'll ask people some questions on the air. And one of the masters said, do you have a strategy that buys the, or sorts cheapest stocks by value, then sorts by quality. And they say, what's the benefit of doing that? Why not just pick value? Is there an added benefit for sorting for quality? And what is it? Is it uh, low volatility? Is it higher quality companies? What's the reasoning for that process? So this is, you know, the book Quantity Value kind of maps through the, the logic behind that. And, and I know uh, Toby has that book, uh, Deep Value, out there. So in one case, you could just buy, say, the cheapest 10% of names on some factor, or, you know, some valuation metric, you know, pick your favorite, they're all about the same. An alternative hypothesis is that you can go play around in that bin of the cheapest names, and within those chip, cheapest names, and in order to capture the value anomaly, you have to be in the cheap. We think we can separate via looking at fundamentals you know, the good from the bad on average. And, and why do we do that just from a theoretical standpoint, behavioral standpoint? Well, one of the things we know has just that's in the evidence, and you can look at like the old Lekonstruck Cypher Vishni 94 paper, you know, it's all about overreaction to bad news. And, and the reason value works is because there's an expectation change in the future. People are like, oh my God, it wasn't as bad as we thought. That's how you make money on average. Now, it tends to be the case that those securities that are more likely to mean revert on their expectation are quality. Because some stocks are cheap for a reason. 
they're pieces of crap. They're bankrupt. They're going, you know, they're they're done. They're they're frauds or manipulators. Like they're falling knives, and, and that's fine. And so what we've shown, I think, empirically, pretty clearly, is that if you can buy cheap, you have to be there. Then within that, focus on quality so you can at least ferret out potential permit loss of capital situations. You you your risk adjusted value anomaly is is going to be better in well, our opinion or at least based in our opinion of what the evidence actually says there's a, there was a funny example a couple of years ago where Joel Greenblatt had started a website called formula investing or something like that and it was basically a precursor to robos where it would allow people to go in and they would manage separate accounts for you based on his quant formula or you could just sign up and, and run the screens and run your own portfolios and also, I think it allowed you to exclude names for some reason if you just wanted to exclude names. And what, what they found was that the people that who would exclude the names did far worse than the ones that just took the screen as is because they would introduce their bias and say, my God, I can't be buying XYZ stock. That's such a, you know, that's a total piece of crap. Like you said, there's no way we can invest in that. And of course, that would be the one that would end up doing the best. And so that's the beauty of a quantitative process. I had a reporter who was like, can you tell us about some of your names? I'm like, look, I'm happy to gossip, but I don't even know what's in the fund. You can, I, I couldn't even tell you what the largest holdings are because if I, if I did start to muck around with it, it would probably hurt more than anything else. Yeah, t- totally agree with that. And, um, and, there, and there's certainly some element of just because obviously we all know that the core muscle movement here is cheap and have horizon, have the, the, you know, the balls to hold on to this thing when it inevitably underperforms for three or five years. That's 95% solution there. All we're saying is with quality at the very margins, we think there's a sustainable, robust benefit. But if, you know, if a guy came to me and said, Hey, I'm just going to go buy cheap stocks and I'm actually going to buy the lowest quality cheap stocks. I'd say, hey, go for it. it. It's maybe it's not optimal, but it's not it's not a terrible idea. Um, it, so quality is really just a, at some level a red herring um, because it pulls attention away from the core muscle movement, which is cheapness, which is critical. And then you know, quality we think does matter, but it's I'm not going to argue. It's like a you know an end all be all to save the world. One of the things for the audience members, Wes manages private accounts for institutions, has a handful of ETFs. Uh, you can look them up online. Can't talk about them on the show. But Wes also started a few months ago. I think it's publicly available now. But why don't you tell us a little bit about the technology space and one of the and another popular post yours, which is called Why We Build an Active Robo-Advisor and Why You Should Too. One of the things you know that you do, Meb, and I'd say you're probably like the the revolutionary on it, is is this idea that you know products at some level should be bought, not sold. Where historically products are always sold, not bought. And in this new age with blogs, media, you know, put, putting yourself out there, being fully transparent about what you do and why you you do it, you get a lot of inbound traffic. The problem is at, when you run an asset manager business, there's obviously, you know, ideally all else equal, you get big millionaires that say, hey, I want to open an account because that's a lot easier. The problem is, it's not really a problem, uh, is that sometimes you get people that are really excited about what you're doing. They love it. They're like, I've got 50 grand. Can you manage a uh, private account for me? 
Like we've got to say, well, listen, I love your enthusiasm. I would love to help you. But if you only have $50,000 in assets, like from an economics perspective, we'd have to charge you so much money. It, it's going to be a lose-lose proposition here. And so the robo aspect now with you know technology and fintech and the ability to kind of automate things and make it where you can actually deal with a 50k account we we saw it as like well listen we got all this natural in inbound flow where people want to work with us but we don't have an economic easy way to do it and we got all these tech guys and programmers let's just build a robo like why not um so that's what we did and and now we now we can take on you know smaller amounts of capital and deliver them you know is the best we are best foot forward you know and obviously there's not going to be like tons of hand holding and you know daily conversations with us cuz that that would make it not work anymore but if you just need a basic portfolio we we can do that with technology and, and to talk a little bit about the investment approach of, of how you think about a portfolio, because it is quite a bit different than what most of the robo, and I call them robo allocators rather than robo advisors, because most of them don't actually come with an advisor. Most of them just give you a portfolio for a low cost. And for those that aren't familiar, there's, there's shops like Vanguard and Schwab, Betterment and Wealthfront. And I'll do it a little bit differently. Vanguard actually comes with an advisor. But, but most of them do a buy and hold allocation, tends to be heavy in the US, but it does a risk scale of if you're older and you have a little bit to retirement, you're going to end up 80, 100% of bonds. If you're younger, you're going to have 100% stocks and something in between. But you guys do it a little bit different in the sense that you do have factor tilts, pretty concentrated factor tilts that will also be different. And then you also added risk management. Uh, overlay, right? Is, isn't, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you got it. So, um, you know, typical robo advisors just let's go buy and hold Vanguard funds. And you got to ask, like, well, you know, any idiot can go buy a Vanguard fund in a Schwab account. Why do you need a robo to do it? So, you know, so I've always kind of questioned that whole thesis at the outset. Um, so, so our robo, well, again, Ours is a robo from a technology standpoint, but you always talk to someone and you can always give us a holler. I mean, like, so it's kind of does have a human element. But what we're trying to do is really like back to your book, which I really like the, the Ivy portfolio originally. You know, you kind of highlight if you, you get big muscle movements on equities, bonds, commodities, and some real estate, you're going to catch this global risk premiums at a real high level. And then we say, let's start with that for equity. Let's tilt towards value and momentum with high conviction, and then let's add trend falling over the top of it. So it's basically like that new Trinity portfolio concept where let's run a globally diversified portfolio, infuse it with value and momentum, and then overlay trend to try to, you know, minimize massive, you know, face ripping drawdown problems. And that's what we're doing. It's basically global macro hedge fund that's cheap. That's the idea. What Wes is referring to a new white paper we've written called the Trinity Portfolio, which <laughs> technically isn't out yet, but by the time that this podcast hits the, uh, hits iTunes, it'll, it'll probably be out as well. But yeah, so unfortunately, this has been another conversation where we tend to agree more than disagree on things. You guys do, do you do any sort of top down thinking on valuation? I know you've written a lot on kind of Cape ideas, written on what, what else are you guys working on these days? You know, as, as far as future research, is there anything you got in the can that you can talk about or is it all, uh, are you just ready to go? Wes and I, we're going to go hiking in, in Colorado this summer. 
ironically, both of our families have uh, land pretty close to each other, but I can't make it, sadly, and we're going to talk about all these brilliant new ideas. So maybe you'll give us a preview of what you guys are working on right now. You know, I would love nothing more than to find a, you know, a, what we would consider like a robust, effective kind of valuation-based switching capability and i think i think your approach with like cape is probably about as good as you can get we we just feel like it's just doesn't have enough bang for the buck relative to just good old-fashioned you know long-term trend type things so we you know we could be convinced obviously and i'm always open to new ideas but valuation-based timing we just haven't got our heads around yet the big thing we've been thinking about is and I think you've been mentioning this maybe vaguely, is looking to match, not doing what, like, a lot of guys talk about risk parity, right? And what is risk parity? Well, you're going to take your your volatility, your standard deviation, and try to make sure you kind of get the same amount from all your assets that are pulled together. But who really cares about volatility? What we all care about is tail risk parity. So we should be thinking about how do we manage the risk of the tails in a portfolio, which is all about understanding what assets go up during a 2008 crisis and what assets go down. Well, here's a, a you know rude awakening. Most stuff, no matter what it's called or how it's sliced or how it's baked, basically blows the hell up when 08 happens, right? Like your corporate bonds, your high yield debt, your convertible ARB, any of these things that sound cool and alty their betas won when the world blows up. So what a guy wants to do is you want to find, okay, what are the things that, you know, give me premiums, but we also know are short volatility and basically blow up. Okay, that's equity. That's all these other things. Let's go find things to partner that with that actually go ripping whenever the world blows up. And as you are, I'm sure, aware of, and I think you've talked about it, Managed futures, short-term trend-following managed futures are an incredible hidden put option on the equity market, in our opinion, albeit noisy. And, and we find that you know those sort of asset classes and, and structures that basically give you insurance-like benefits with you know potentially positive carry, coupled with you know equity or whatever the heck people own, that leads to robust diversified portfolios. Also, a lot of career risk, uh, which is why a lot of people don't do it. But we, we think that's a new horizon. And managed futures for the audience, if you're not familiar, because a lot of individuals, but also institutions, have very little to no allocation of managed futures. It's nothing more than a trend-following approach to, let's call it, 50 world markets, where you can go long or short based on a trend-following algorithm. And like Wes said, it's one of the best diversifiers to a traditional portfolio. The thing that often keeps me up at night for traditional portfolios today, and you guys actually had a, a guest blog on this, I think, yesterday, is that most people assume bonds will diversify stocks in in bad times. And while that is often the case, it is not always the case. And when you have a world where U.S. bond yields are one and a half percent, foreign bond yields are zero or negative, you know, the next equity crisis, will bonds diversify that? I don't think you can count on that. And so managed futures historically has been one of the best. There's a lot of insurance sort of option-based tail funds that are expensive, you know, you're paying an insurance, but could protect you as well. We, we spend a lot of time thinking about both as well. I don't have any easy answers, but I often call managed futures my desert island strategy. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I, ironically, I used to own the domain riskparity.com. I sold it uh, many years ago to a large institution unknowingly. And that's kind of a funny story, we'll say, for another time where I would have happily sold it for $500, but sold it for much more. We'll, we'll, we'll t- Maybe I'll tell you about that at your Freedom Festival. Are you guys doing that again this year? Uh, we're not, we're not doing free to me in this year just cause the logistics requirement are, are huge. And, and right now there's a, you know, there's a, a rapid or a rapid race to buy ammo stocks and air 15. So I don't, you know, I don't feel like fighting on the demand. See, that, that's a, that's a good idea for you. You should launch a ammo and guns ETF and then people yeah. that you could say, look, I, I'm agnostic. You can even buy them or you can short them. It, you could work to both sides, the people that hate guns and people that love guns. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, and I noticed just, you know, not, not to sound like a crazy weirdo, but, you know, I'm always buying ammo and, and guns or thing. And, and what you notice is like, one, the minute the world is like, oh my God, we're, we're going to like, you know, take this stuff off the market. The great irony is all of a sudden people go buying this stuff hand over fist, you know, ammo stocks get down, the prices go shooting skyward. And what happens? The, the oversupply happens, and then what happens is there's a huge crash in those markets like six months down the road. So it's like one of these like super predictable, you know, kind of market things. Rinse and repeat. My favorite example is the, the Cuban closed-in fund, which, by the way, doesn't even own Cuban stocks, but will trade at a 50% premium or discount based on whether people think Castro is going to die or we're opening up trade to, uh, to Cuba. That, that thing went to like 12 bucks and then is now back down to six bucks because all these people buy it thinking they're buying Cuban stocks. And of course, what are they getting? A bunch of Florida cement makers and a 2% fee on top of it. <laughs> Look, Wes, I know you have a call. So we're going to wind down here. We'll get you back on the podcast six months, a year from now and have you on for longer. We usually end our podcast with a question to the listeners, which is to name something. This is the only prepared question, so hopefully you have something. If not, I'll name two. Something you find useful, beautiful, or downright magical. Do you have something for the listeners? It's uh, I'll borrow it from my wife. She actually uh, told me about it, but there, there's this really cool website. Uh, it has a weird name. It's Camel camelcamel.com and what it is it's like being travel where they they tell you when the flights like the best prices like when to buy when not to buy and a lot of people don't know but like amazon changes their prices all day long and for a bunch of different reasons and camel 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 just allows you to basically identify kind of when you can bottom tick your purchase of you know whatever you want to buy on amazon it's super cool recommend everyone check it out just to kind of get ahead of the Amazon algos. I feel like knowing you as a potential prankster, this would be like a really funny joke if that actually wasn't a, what it was, but it's some like giant pop-up where someone's <laughs> going to be screaming on their on their computer and it's going to embarrass everyone when they open it. I hope so. I've never heard of this. so No, it's, it's totally legit. But that <laughs> said, if you go to alpha-architect.com, don't go there because it's a spammer guy and we can't do anything about it. But um, yeah, there's people do crazy things. But this one's legit. That's really funny because when I did the ideafarm.com, someone else has idea farm. And if you go to that site, it's 
altogether different different site than uh than a finance research portal. I'm not going to I'm not going to tell anyone to go there, but it's but it's but it is unique. All right, my my thing I find beautiful, useful, magical. I'm going to two real quick. One, Nancy Silverton's pizza recipe. This is the best pizza recipe. I've cooked a gazillion pizza doughs from Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and everywhere else and they always end up kind of just meh. This pizza recipe from a LA famous LA uh, chef baker is one of the best pizza recipes on the planet. The other one I'll give you is a website called Charity Buzz. And this lets you go online and bid on various sort of events, things like uh, lunch with, you know, uh, a famous actor or sports figure or tickets to Hamilton or a villa rental in Joshua Tree. And I kind of regret telling people this because it's not a very efficient market yet. And so a lot of these experiences or services will go for pretty low cost. And the good news is, is that it all goes to charity. So a really cool website for some unique ideas. Wes, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you? Tell us uh, uh, to learn more about you other than alpha-not-architect.com. Yeah, yeah, just just alphaarchitect.com without the dash you you're good to go. Just yeah, don't put the dash in unless you're you know feeling frisky, I guess. But uh yeah, alphaarchitect.com is is pretty much where we uh, hang out. And so Wes also is active on Twitter as well as some of his coworkers and researchers. He has three books, all highly recommended, embedded, quantitative value, do-it-yourself investor. You don't you have a fourth one on the way here soon? We do. Jack and I are uh, working on its uh, quantitative momentum, and uh, that should be out. Uh, I guess I actually need to send the manuscript into Wiley here, the, the copy. It's like as we speak, but it should be out. Like I imagine, two to three months. All right, excellent. Looking forward to that. And lastly, Wes is a prolific academic writer. He's got at least a dozen papers on the SSRN, uh, some of which we've we've worked with him on, and uh, I'm sure a lot more to come. You can always find show notes for this episode. We'll link to all the papers we mentioned, the websites, et cetera, at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. And subscribe to uh, the Meb Faber show on iTunes. You And if you like the show, hated it, leave a review. We would appreciate it. Wes, again, thanks for coming today. Thanks for listening and good investing. for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. 
Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights.